Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones begins this Sunday, which means Binge Mode Game of Thrones makes its long-awaited return, with your resident experts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion guiding you through each episode. And to get your fix every Sunday night, Chris Ryan joins Mallory and Jason on Talk the Thrones, a Twitter after show recapping each episode throughout the season. So make sure you check out the Binge Mode podcast on Apple or Spotify, Talk the Thrones on Twitter, and for even more Thrones coverage, you can head to theringer.com. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Kevin, how you doing, bud? I'm doing better than you. You've got uh, weird ear shapes and you've got your earphones in today. Tough day for you. Yeah, Apple headphones are, uh, they don't like me. <laughs> they, they, they judge my ear shape because I don't have a little shelf that holds them in, so they fall out constantly. A little shelf. And I'm having to use my phone. Just think about your ear. Uh-huh. How it, like, it goes up and it keeps the headphone in. Mine is flat, so they just fall right out. It's been an ongoing problem since Apple has started to dominate my life. It's not great. I'm serious about it. Well, I'm a little upset. Godspeed. Thoughts and prayers for this podcast. I, and I'm also not doing as well as you because congratulations, buddy. Your Orlando Magic are in playing in the NBA playoffs. It's happening. I'm flying, flying out. I'm going to be at game four uh, just in time. I would say, I don't want to get greedy. I would say that game four is when we go up 3-1 on Toronto. Um, and, uh, it'll be nice. It's, it's been a while. Um, I, yeah, it's fun. My wife and I have been together for seven years and we only, I, at the beginning of our relationship, I explained with one of the magic's first playoff games, obviously of the year. So I explained it to her. I was like, yeah, the magic make the playoffs every year. And, uh, they have not made it since. It's one of those conversations we always have about the value of making the playoffs, of just making the playoffs. And we always talk about how, well, who cares if you're like the seventh seed or the eighth seed? And then you ask someone from that fan base that hasn't made the playoffs in nearly a decade. And they're like, oh, we care. We, we care desperately that well, we made the playoffs. Like, it's just oh, a yeah, it's fun good. thing to do. I'm not flying exactly. home to go to a, you know, there's not a lot going on. I'm not going to fly home for the AAF. <laughs> I'm not going to fly home for Orlando City versus FC Dallas. Hey, I'm happy for you. You don't have to defend your choices to me. I completely understand. It's going to be great, and, and I hope you enjoy it. So we're continuing our draft shows today. We, you and I are going to talk about the three corners that we want to be on in regard to this year's draft, kind of the three things we're planting our flag in. When I pitched this yesterday, you thought I was talking about cornerbacks, and you were very confused why we were going to devote an entire show to cornerbacks. You said the corner show, and I was like, all right, I mean, I guess if you really feel strongly about the cornerbacks, I just love it. Class, I just want to grind corner tape for an hour. No, <laughs> that's it, what I thought you meant. And it's I was us confused. establishing I was the confused. corners we're taking on this draft where everybody knows exactly where we stand on any issue. I'm going to throw out a few. You're going to throw out a few. And then as we've been doing recently, Danny Kelly is going to join us. We're going to talk about a specific position group this week. It is the front four players, defensive linemen, outside linebackers, which I think a lot of people consider the kind of premier group of players in this class. So we're going to dig into those guys. Danny's very high on a couple specific players that not as many people are really touting. So I can't wait to talk to him about that stuff. But before we do that, let's get to our corner. So why don't you throw out your first one? Sure. Okay. So about 13 years ago, two economists, one of whom went on to win a Nobel Prize wrote a paper essentially saying that you should never take the draft pick that you are given. You should always trade down. And the Patriots 
built a franchise around that. The Eagles have done so. You know, Jeffrey Lurie came out a couple weeks ago and said what's what is exactly correct, which is they're not cocky enough, that was his word, to think that they can outdraft everybody. They're, they believe in volume. They want to hoard picks. I get it. I would have done that every single draft, uh, basically since I figured that out, right? I would do I would hammer that strategy over and over again. Here's my thought. We live in a post-Sashi world. We live in a post-Belichick has, has, <laughs> has been doing his thing for a long time. The Eagles, the Ravens, teams that hoard comp picks. Again, you look at the Rams. They've got some comp picks this year. The smart teams have figured out how— I mean, basically, they have to get rid of the comp picks in the next CBA because teams have figured out how to hoard them so much. You can also trade those comp picks right now, which was not the case three or four years ago. So— I guess what I'm saying, and, and, and let's dovetail this with a story I read yesterday in the Miami Herald. It's a really interesting story about how when the Dolphins were going to draft Minka Fitzpatrick, Stephen Ross just reflexively said, trade down, we need more picks. And the Dolphins, Chris Greer said no and took Minka Fitzpatrick. And I guess what I'm saying, I understand the strategy and I endorse the strategy of getting as many picks as possible. I am a Sashi believer. But if there's a critical mass of owners who want to trade back, no matter the cost, because they want slightly more picks, at some point, the value of trading up becomes worth it. Debate yeah, me. I mean, it's just Debate a me, of exploiting Maze. inefficiencies, right? So I'm not, I, I think that it's like the about... Pa- the Patriots have 12 picks. They can't put it, they can't okay. roster them all. And, and so what do you do? You just, maybe you package a handful of those third round picks or second round picks, whatever, mid round picks, fourth round picks, and you just try to sneak into the second round, grab that tight end. Maybe you keep going up and up and up, and all of a sudden you got Noah Fant. I'm just saying there are going to be inefficiencies in the trade-up market as more and more owners catch on to the trade-down market, which at some point has to start saturating. So there's a couple different thoughts that I have here. One, most of the trades-up we've seen recently, especially the aggressive trades-up, have been for quarterbacks. Those are trades I typically would endorse if you think you have your guy and those are trades that include very high-level picks. You know, both the Texans and the Chiefs gave up a future first-round pick when they went up and got their guys. I think they would, I mean, clearly, they would make those trades again 100 times out of 100. But the quarterback is so valuable that those are a little bit easier to rationalize. When we're talking about other positions, it becomes much more difficult. So I think the specific situation that you have with your team has to be such that a trade-up makes sense. If you're a team like the Patriots, whose window with Tom Brady is not necessarily huge, who has a ton of picks, sure, you make your trade-up. But there are a lot of other things where it's like, ah, this is not something I would do. I would never trade up if it includes a future first-round pick. Things like that. Right, I would just I'm, not, never I'm, not do su- I'm not suggesting that. Sure, exactly. So I just think that certain types of trades are off the table to me. But there are other types of trades where, you know, if you're swapping a third and a fifth and you're the Patriots and that makes sense to you, I get that kind of stuff. But I think there are certain teams where that's just never true. Let's take, for example, what the Bills did last year. So the Bills obviously go up and get Josh Allen, but they do something else a little bit later in the draft. They had the number 22 pick. They trade that to the Titans and they flip a third round pick of theirs for a fifth round pick of Oakland's in order to get Tremaine Edmonds. I would never do that if I were the Buffalo Bills because you're not in a position where that third round pick and fifth round pick has a negligible difference. That matters a lot. The chances of that third round pick turning into a starter for you and the fifth round is huge. 
I would wait those six picks, take a player that's not Tremaine Edmonds, and get that third-round pick. So I think for it matters on your situation. In a vacuum, you always want to trade down, but I think there are certain teams that understand they're competitive enough that the, the difference between the third-round pick and the fifth-round pick, they can wipe that away. But so many teams, most of the teams in the league, are not in that position. Sure. I want to talk briefly about the trade chart. So Jimmy Johnson invents the trade chart 30 years ago. There are some tweaks to it. Belichick says yes, yesterday. Stewart has one that I use that's a little bit different sure. that he kind of revamped a couple yeah. years ago. And so yeah. Belichick says that every team uses the same trade chart now. It wasn't like that a couple years ago. And Bill Barnwell correctly pointed out this was Bill Belichick trying to tell the NFL that he uses the same trade chart that they do. He does not use the same trade chart that they do. That's the Bill Belichick doesn't do anything else that like I don't even Doug Marone does. So have you read Astro Ball yet? Uh, no, I'm familiar with what's in there. So I, so I was reading it today. I'm, I'm reading it right now, and I was just kind of digging into it, and it just reminded me of that when Bill Belichick threw out that yesterday. Just because there's so many different kind of quantities and variables that go into some of these analytical systems that professional sports franchises use now. And if you're a team that cares about analytics, you're, you're not using a draft chart that you're Jimmy Johnson anything. made in the in the eight in the late eighties, right. I mean, you're not you're, you have a different way of understanding how to value these picks and what they're going to get you. So I think what he is he, what he's trying to say, or what the point of that comment from Belichick is that makes more sense to me, is that enough teams understand the value of draft picks now that you're probably not going to gouge teams on some of these deals. I think that's more the message. Even if I don't agree with it, I think that's closer to the truth. Sure. So. Couple things. Number one, I had a, I, I slightly disagree with you on the gouging thing, and here's why. I had a talk mm, two weeks ago at the owners' meeting with a, burp, 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 how to describe this person? With a person. How about that? With the person. And uh, they, were ta- good. they were talking. They've had high picks in the past, and uh, they were talking about trading out and trading down. And they were saying that when it comes now to having a top three pick depending on how many quarterbacks there are. This is probably a two-quarterback draft in the top five, you'd say? Yes. Yeah. Most likely. I mean, again, this is all speculation. Who the hell knows? Let's say you need to be in the top two in 2019, okay? Sometimes you need to be in the top five. Sometimes, like with Darnold, you need to be you know, in the top three, whatever. So that's where we start. And I think that what this person was saying was that now, because the quarterback, because the cheap quarterback is so different, you know, as Kevin Demoff said, saves you $50 million over the cap over the first four years. It, there's no trade chart because it's an auction. It's an auction because that different teams are going to freak out and overvalue a guy because of all the things that or should should freak out and overvalue a team a, a young cheap quarterback who was under contract for five years, and so I think that the teams at the very top of the draft, if they're thinking about trading down, I don't necessarily know if that's the case for either of these two. Um, it, well, I mean, if Haskins rises up, I could see obviously the 49ers doing it, but they wouldn't want to fall that far. They still want a prospect to, to pair with their their. Core I think talent. the 49ers would not trade down. I think the 49ers have a sense of urgency about getting better quickly. Because no, I know, but been. but if you if you could go from if you could still stay in the top six or something, I don't know. It, it depends oh, how much I they would like. Do it. <laughs> it. It depends how much they like Williams or Bosa. Oh, I would do it. Just to be clear, if I were the 49ers, I would trade down. If I were the Cardinals, I would trade out of that pick. So I'm with you. Right. I also, I, I'm totally on board with this. With, when it comes to quarterbacks in the top three, there is no value. There's no comparable value that you're getting back right. for so those picks. Because the, the, teams just to wrap up, those. to wrap up my point, basically this person was saying, 
there is no trade chart at the top because all you're betting on is a team panicking. I'm totally with you there. We are on the exact same page. I think those are the picks where you can really just needle teams because they it's all about desperation. It's all about teams just flailing because they need a quarterback. And that's why I think that one of the best things to have in the draft right now for value is to be a team, like you said, if, if it's a three quarterback, whatever, in the top X amount of picks already having a quarterback. The latest example being the Colts, obviously. And I think that right now the Cardinals are in that spot if they think Rosen's their guy. And that's why I think it's not as simple as do we want Kyler Murray or Josh Rosen? Because if you can get a King's ransom for that pick, it becomes insanely more valuable. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. So again, when I'm talking about how there's value in trading up, I don't mean for the second pick. I don't mean for the first pick. I mean for the 28th pick. Um, and I think that sure. we're going to start to see that. I mean, if everybody, if there's just an army of Steve Rosses who just want to trade down because because they read that all the smart people do it, then that you can take advantage of that, especially if the trade chart isn't actually in use. Sure, I'm with you. Okay, let me get to my first one here. I feel like we're going to talk about this position group later, and I think that's been the talk of this entire draft process uh, outside of Kyler Murray is that there's so many pass rushers, so many defensive linemen. In my opinion, though, when I look at what teams need, what's worked out in the past, and, and a couple other factors, I think the position group will remember when this draft is all said and done here in three years and we're looking back is offensive tackle. Because so many teams need ready-made pass-blocking tackles, and there's a shortage of them. And it seems like there is a surplus of them in this year's draft. You know, it used to be the case where offensive tackle in the first round was typically the safest pick. You know, that's the type of guy that instantly made you a lot better. I'm thinking about the 2008 Dolphins when they picked Jake Long. They were the worst team in the league, and then they had a huge jump. And there's been a lot of those kind of examples over the years. But it's gone the other way now in with the Luke Jokel tra- drafts and all that stuff. Mem- remember Robinson, for like 20 so many- years, every time anybody's drafted a left tackle, it, 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 armchair analysis was just, well, pencil him in for 15 years. That's exactly right. like, what? Yep. And it's just been 10 <laughs> years. never happened. Starters. That I mean, happened that's like Bruce say. Matthews. So, but a lot of guys, that was the case. You know, if Jake Long hadn't gotten hurt, he's exactly that type of player. So, it, but it's gone the other way recently. You've had so many swings and misses. You know, Eric Flowers mm-hmm. was bad in the top 10. There's, again, Greg Robinson. I think this year we're going to see a lot of tackles succeed because they're different types of prospects. And I'm thinking about Andre Dillard yeah, from Washington that's State. Yeah, that's my guy. Jonah John, John Williams from Alabama. You know, John Taylor crushes. from Florida. Uh, Dalton Risner from Kansas State. You know, Ford from Cody Ford from Oklahoma. Because if you look at these guys and you think, and I've watched a bunch of them and I've read a lot about all of them, the conversation and the analysis around them is so much different than some of the top tackle prospects in recent years. Mm-hmm. You think about what Eric Flowers was. Every evaluation of Eric Flowers was, God, he can move. He's so big and powerful and he's got the feet. And, you know, We can figure it out. But his weaknesses were always, well, he's a little off balance. He's not a good pass blocker. He's got to get better. Those are the bad choices you can make in the first round about an offensive tackle. The good choices you can make are this guy pass protects very well. He's going to have to work on some stuff in terms of strength or, you know, he doesn't fit the profile in terms of traits or he's a little small. He's not a mauler in the run game. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's kind of the book on Dillard, but those guys can block people. They can stay in front of people when you throw the ball a lot, which every team does. So I think we're going to see a lot of those tackles succeed this year. 
And then next year, as teams try to reverse engineer why picks works, they're going to say, well, we need an offensive tackle in the first round. And they're going to go back to these Tracy guys again, and they're going to be sorely disappointed. Tracy. So it's kind of like a two-year cycle here for me. Hey, did you see the Mike Renner stat about true pass sets taken in, over the course of the career for the prospects? No. Okay, let me share them with you. That's a really good stat, though. I did not see it. Well, let me share it with you. Cody Ford, 99 over his career. Okay, 99 pass, pass sets. Juwan Taylor, 404. Dante, D- Dalton Risner, 418. Jonah Williams, 459. What do you guess Andre Dillard is at? I bet it's 1,200. 966. <laughs> Mike Leach is the king, man. There is a me, Mike Leach. no one has ever had 10,000 hour theory of pass blocking except Andre Dillard. Uh, but that's um, but we when I wrote about offensive line play a couple years ago, that was one of the biggest issues is that there wasn't a 10,000 hour kind of moment for these guys anymore because of practice time and the offenses and all this stuff. So if you have pass blocked that many times, it puts well for you and he's really good at it. So I just think all these guys, I mean like Dalton Risner, it reminds me of like when Cody Whitehair was coming out and maybe they just, because they played in the same school, that, that's kind of my thinking, just guys that can play guys that mm-hmm. understand leverage and angles and you know how to use their hands and just little things that matter. Like Jonah Williams, People look at Jonah Williams and I just don't understand how all this over analysis, the guy's just good. Just draft him and you're going to be fine. It's like what, like last year, right? So there was these offensive tackles taken in the first round that just didn't know how to play. Like you, Colton Miller's draft kind of profile was, hey, you know, he's got decent feet. He's above average athletically. He's got a big frame, but it wasn't, he just knows how to play football and all these guys seem to. And that's why I think it's going to be a really good class of players. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. I don't, I got to be honest with you, the maze, we're wired differently. I don't think there's any way I think about any draft class and think about the offensive tackles, but um, I get what you're saying. <laughs> All right, what's your next one? I think that this is, don't don't read too much into the statement I'm about to make because it's, it's, it's more general, but wide receivers are the new running back in the sense that there is going to be quality throughout maybe the first four rounds and you can wait and get a really good player. And that segues into what you're about to say, Maze, and we're going to converge on our points. Go ahead, baby. So mine is that I just think Miles Boykin from Notre yes. Dame is going to be good. Yes. Like I, I watched when I'm watching other players, I, I did a breakdown today on Grandland.com, which is a website you should read. Excuse uh, me? About, yeah. It's, uh, Jesus Christ. I can't believe I did that. <laughs> Excuse me? Craig, leave that in. <laughs> Leave it in. Uh, wow. Uh, excuse me. I'm, I'm sorry. It's been three <laughs> it years. It happens, man. It happens. On the ringer.com, which is a website that you should read. Uh, so, and it was about the Michigan guys. And I was watching the, Mich- the Mich- Michigan defense players. And I'm watching the Michigan defensive players. And they're playing Notre Dame. And it just seems like every time I watch a Notre Dame game, when I'm trying to watch another team, he pops. It's like, that guy's just going to be good, man. His traits are off the chart. He's 99th percentile broad jump, 98 right. vertical leap. Uh, you He's know, 6'4, 220. He ran a 4'4, 240. I mean, the dude is just a crazy athlete. And he's flawed. Mm-hmm. But all the receivers in this class are flawed. There is no true number one guy. You're like, that's the dude. He's complete. Every single one of these players has something to be concerned about. And I would rather draft Miles Boykin at 70. Two or sixty-five. I think he's going to go higher than that. Then, well, fine. Or in the back half of the second round, let's say, then draft DK Metcalf at twenty or fifteen. Yeah, 
Well, I just I mean, think that they're. Yeah, I've been saying that for for a number of pods, and I think that you know, I think Bucky Brooks, I saw this morning, has his first receiver off the board being um, Hollywood Brown. And, well, I think uh, Daniel Jeremiah said that yesterday as well. Excuse me. Okay, okay, maybe they both said it. They have a, they have a very good podcast together, so maybe they just they've merged minds. But I think that it, I don't know if taking any receiver in the top twenty is worth it when you consider the depth, and I think that that's a little bit more environmental than we think in the sense that that was what I was about to ask this you. is what sort of youth football high school football and college football have wrought which is you know I remember reporting the story five years ago about seven on seven leagues and, and sort of their effects and you have to remember who's getting really good in seven on sevens well the cornerbacks are just basically paying straight up man coverage maybe there's some value in that but it's not very complicated and whatever i mean it, they're getting some reps i'm sure seven on seven is pretty much two man across the board sure. that's what they play in yeah seven it's on not seven. it's so not two corners are playing man yeah and so you're getting tight you're throwing into tight windows all the time so quarterbacks get better and wide receivers are constantly running routes and learning against really tight man coverage and so wide receivers are really good, and the the size is there. Um, you know, Belichick talked about yesterday about you know how many guys there are who are you know six four, six five, and you're gonna need guys to cover them. I don't. I think that it, it's amazing to me how quickly how quickly it shifts between okay, the wide receivers are tall, we need tall cornerbacks. Okay, now the wide receivers are small, we need small cornerbacks. Um, that seems to reverse itself every like three years, and it's one of the most interesting parts parts of the chess game within football. Yeah, Belichick was talking about this yesterday. I had a really interesting quote about that, just the changing shapes of players and how you kind yeah. of have to respond to it. I don't know. I think this, in terms of tall corner or tall wide receivers, I think that's more a class-specific thing to this group than it is something sure. to be said about the direction of football. But I feel like what you're saying with more wide receivers being contributing players, that is true in my mind. And that's been true really over the last five years. You know, if you look at the receiving classes we've had recently, you really have to go back to 2014 to find guys that were drafted in the top half of the first round that were transcendent players that deserve to be drafted that high over guys later in the draft. That was Mike Evans, Odell Beckham. You know, those two, they're different. Those two are unicorns. But every class since then, you really are getting comparable value for players later in the draft. So in 2015, 2015, you had Amari Cooper go fourth overall. Mm -hmm. But you look later in that draft, you got Stephon Diggs in the fifth round. You got Tyler Lockett in the third round. You go to the 2016 class. Corey Coleman was the first wide receiver taken. Will Fuller was in the 20s. But you've got, I mean, Tyreek Hill is obviously a different kind of case, but those guys have not outperformed guys like Michael Thomas, Tyler Boyd. Later in the draft was better. 2017, 2017, Juju in the second round, right? Juju in the second round, but not only just Juju. Juju, so you had Corey Davis fifth, Mike Williams seventh, John Ross ninth. Later in that draft, you have Juju in the second round, Cooper Cup in the third, Chris Godwin in the third, Kenny Galladay in the third. So this has really played out here over the last five seasons. The 2008 class, obviously it's a little bit early, but I mean, there nobody in that group really blew you away. Calvin Ridley was very good, but I think that guys like Christian Kirk, Dante Pettis, dudes that were drafted in the second round, I still have hope for Anthony Miller. So I think it's a really good point. I'm with you on that. I still feel like every once in a while, we're going to have a guy that's worth drafting fifth overall. You're going to have a Julio, somebody like that. But for the most part, I think that you're right on. 
Yeah, I mean, every again, yeah, every couple of years, someone like Julio is going to be worth it. Someone like AJ Green is going to be worth it. Someone like Odell is going to be worth it. But in this sort of draft, where we've all oddly talked ourselves into DK Metcalf, uh, yeah, no, I, I I can wait on that. Thanks, guys. Great point. What's your next one? Okay, so I I've been saying this for two years. I think I I looked up what I wrote about it uh, on theRinger.com. And it was two years oh, ago. You, oh, you, you, remember, you remember where we worked? I do remember where I work now. It was July of 2017, and I said that I felt like the pendulum was going to swing back as defenses were getting smaller, that offenses would get bigger. They would be using more tight ends, more fullbacks, as a way to exploit defenders. And that hasn't really borne out over the last two years, except for the smartest teams. So right last season there were eight teams that were in 11 personnel, less than 60% of their snaps. And it's the teams you would expect. It's New England, San Francisco, Philadelphia, these teams that are very good at kind of diversifying New Orleans, diversifying their personnel in order to keep defenses off balance. And I think this is the draft where teams, again, are going to kind of reverse engineer their plan. They're going to look at who was good and why, and they're really going to get a lot bigger. We're going to see teams that don't seem to need a tight end, take one. A guy like Travon Weston, I think is his name, from West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Not a guy that, that jumps out. Not a fast guy. Not a particularly prolific receiver. I think he had 20 receptions last season. But he's an excellent blocker. He weighs 270. You can use him as an H-back, as a fullback. I think we're going to see more teams looking for players like that in order to mix up what they want to do offensively. I was talking to Warren Sharp about this a little bit earlier today, and he sent me some numbers it is remarkable how much more efficient passing games are out of big personnel packages. When you have tight, two tight ends on the field instead of three receivers, it's one a whole a whole yard better yards per attempt with in those heavier sets. And I just think teams are going to start understanding that and start using more of them. And I think especially as this Shanahan, Kubiak, McVay tree system kind of proliferates in the NFL, it's going to become even more exaggerated. So that is my very long-winded point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just, I think there's a lot of ways to build a team, and I think that's that's one of them. And I think that, you know, there's so many things that teams could do to be more efficient. They could just run more play action, for instance. But this is one of them, and if I think it's something... And play that, action is more, efe- more effective right. out of these sets. That's right. that's part of it. Exactly, exactly. And so, and that's something you've written about a lot. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's definitely a model. I mean, there's a reason that a really smart organization like San Francisco gave more money to a fullback than any team in history. Yeah, and there's a reason that the Patriots do this stuff. I mean, it's just, it really does give your team just a modicum of efficiency that other teams do not have because you keep teams off balance. I mean, there is a reason that more, it's a higher touchdown percentage. It's a lower sack percentage. It's a lower interception percentage. It's safer and it's more efficient. So I just don't understand why more teams don't embrace this. And again, as the best teams, there's the most efficient offenses prove that this works. I think this is the draft where we're going to see it shift a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if last year it was eight teams that were less than 60% with 11 personnel. I would be surprised next year if it were 12 or even more. I think this is the year where it really starts to take hold. I want to talk about, are you, are you done? That's it. This point? What's okay. yours? <sighs> Don't cut that, Craig. Don't cut that sigh and pause. <laughs> Drew Locke. Oh, man, this is going to be great. Let's go. I'm putting the gloves on. I am pumped. 
I want to read. Let's do reading. Drew Locke, written about in Sports Illustrated by Albert Breer today. About his demeanor. He's one team's over with his personality. Let's, let's get to the quote. AFC scouting director. He's unflappable. He just has a ton of confidence. Part of the issue with rookie quarterbacks are throwing a lot at them. They start to make mistakes. They get in their own head. You get the sense from Locke he'll be unfazed by it all. Like he'll throw three picks in a game and come back and think he's this shit still. Yeah, that's great. I'm in on this. Okay. What's the problem with that statement? Well, first of all, he's now he's just Jay Cutler. Now we're just Jay. We're just now we've talked about <laughs> it on the pod for three straight weeks, and now he's just Jay Cutler. Are you familiar with FIFA at all, Robert Mays? The organization? No, like the game. Sure, I, I think I think so. Like I think they just have part of the thing is that they just regenerate old retired players. Like they, if a player retires, they then come back as a young player and they do the whole career again. That's part of the career mode there. This is just what we've re we've Jay Cutler has just been reborn and he's, he thinks he's the shit still after three, three interceptions. Um, I want to tackle this point because it shows you, you know, it's been 20 years since Moneyball and that, jo- that was sort of, Sort of the joke in that book was we're not selling jeans. You have these scouts, and I'm sure you read it in Astro Ball as well. You have these scouts who are still going on sort of old world philosophies, and then the new school uh, toppled those scouts. And now we have a scouting director who is just pumped and jacked that he's going to be really cool after he throws three interceptions. And I can see why teams make mistakes. That's all. I think we're looking at the wrong things. I don't think they should give any thought to how whether or not a player is going to look cool after three interceptions. And beyond that, I don't think Drew Locke is very good. Fight me. I like Drew Locke. I'm in. Like I, I just think so. That, tell me, again, you, see, talk- you see more in than you have been the last couple of weeks. Tell me about it. I was I, I, not really. I think that I'm a similar amount of in, and, and it's because I've started to kind of double down in my own mind about the stuff I said before, where it's not that he's inaccurate. It's that there are bad plays. He's not consistently off with throws. When, his, when everything is working together, when his feet are in concert with his upper body and when he's confident about where the ball is going, he really places it well. I don't think you can fix an inaccurate quarterback. Like Josh Allen, I'm I'm still concerned about. I always will be. I don't like Daniel Jones, stuff like that. But watching Drew Locke play, there's so many throws where it's just on the money. And Dan Orlovsky pointed one out today uh, on ESPN and on Twitter that he just put this whole shot against Alabama where it was a deep half safety and he just puts it right up the sideline. He's got the arm to make it happen. And those are the types of throws where I just think, if you put him in the right system with the right coaches and you get him a really nice quarterbacks coach, he just has the physical ability to be really successful and really good. I think it's just a matter of cleaning up feet in just disadvantageous situations. That's where I'm at. And I just think that it was so bad at Missouri. The help was so bad. (laughs) Their team, their program was so bad during the time he was there. I just think if he gets put in a good spot, he can be really good. So, some of his throws are as good as anybody in this class. My concern, I mean, some of these throws are just unbelievable. I mean, I, you know, Josh Allen, good, right? And, uh, <laughs> but I, I worry about the bad plays. I just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, there are a lot of them. And he still he completed what, 60% of his passes last year? Again, I mean, if you think that, that he's not an inaccurate quarterback, that's fine. I just, 
I, I, the, the bad plays were, were pretty bad. I, there's a lot of, there were a lot of, there's a lot of joking on NFL Twitter about the phrase arm talent going around right now. Drew Locke is an arm talent prospect. I agree with that. And I also don't agree with that because we, I think we ascribe that phrase to quarterbacks that just have huge arms that don't know where the ball is going. And he knows where the ball is going often enough. The problem is there are just two or three plays a game often where you're like, what the fuck is he doing? And my concern is that often you can't teach that out of a quarterback. We were talking about that with Jameis Winston when he was coming out. Can you make sure a guy isn't willing to just throw it up for grabs when it's not working? And I don't know the answer to that with every single guy, but I think that with the right coaching, he can be talked out of it. Sam Darnold, same kind of situation. He had 15 interceptions last year, uh, and that was the concern about him coming out. Can you get rid of that? And I don't know. And with Drew Locke, I just see enough where if you think the answer is yes, then you take him. You would draft him where? In the top 10. In the top 10? Yeah. I would not do I think that. He's, I think he's better than other quarterbacks that have gone in the top 10. Do you think, it, he's, better than Has- about- do you think he's better than Haskins? No, probably not. I, I think it's close, though. I, I'm not a quarterback evaluator. I mean, these things are really difficult to parse when you don't know exactly what you're watching. I can tell. I, I mean, it's. I, I just know when I there are certain elements to a guy that I like. I I wouldn't be able to tell you kind of the incremental differences between the two. I just think that I see enough plays from Drew Locke where he can be a successful NFL quarterback. Sure, in right but that's how we end up with Josh Allen. I'm just. I'm not comparing the two. I'm just saying that nah, NFL throws are how we ended up with Josh Allen going in the top five. Top 10? But Josh Allen's not accurate. Josh Allen's never accurate. That, that's the biggest difference from, to me, and that, to me, is the most important difference between quarterbacks. Listen, none of this matters. John Elway's going to sell the farm, and they're going to run under center for the next four years. That's the problem. I just think he's going to go to... Who's the offensive coordinator in Denver now? Is It's not... Uh, this is the type of stuff maybe... Oh, it's Scagarello. I'm in. Oh, let's, yeah. go, let's do this. Oh, you're in? Well, if it's that system, if he's doing the same kind of play-action stuff and kind of wanting to do... Got a Shanahanian kind of offense there. I'm in because I we talked about this with DK. I just think that's the type of system he could really succeed in. So let's do this. I'm 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 okay with that. If, if they want to draft Drew Lock, I support them. My corner is don't take Drew Lock in the top ten. My corner is I'm okay if you do, and I think Drew Lock can be good. Again, caveat in the rights in the right setting. Well, uh, who who can't be good in the right setting? Plenty of quarterbacks. <laughs> Plenty of quarterbacks. I think a lot of quarterbacks can survive in the right setting. I think that it takes a decent quarterback to thrive in the right setting still to this day. What would Josh Allen look like in, in the Rams offense? I think he'd be worse than Jared Goff. I, no, no, no. I agree with that. I'm just wondering, thought exercise-wise. I think he'd be fine. And I think that's what I'm saying. Most quarterbacks can be fine. If you make it to the NFL, you can probably acquit yourself decently in any system. But I think that it still takes a certain type of player to be really good no matter where you go. And I think Drew Locke can be really good in the right system. That's DK. Let's get him on. We are very pleased to welcome Danny Kelly to the show. Draft guru Danny Kelly to the show to talk about this year's (laughs) class of defensive linemen and front four players. DK, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing excellent. How are you guys doing? Good, DK. Maze Maze planted his flag on the Drew Locke corner. He missed it. I'm just not as down on Drew Locke as you guys are. That's all. The worst takes in this entire company right now are your Drew Locke takes and producer Craig saying that I would lose in a boxing match to almost everybody. (laughs) We're not getting into this. We we, we can get into more Drew Locke later, but we're going to save the boxing takes for our non-existent boxing podcast. Craig thinks anybody taller than me can beat me, which is just wrong. And we're doing a separate pod on this. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I'm glad the boxing chat is out. Cheddar is out of the way. All right, Danny. So let's start off with the guys that most people just consensus think are at the top of this draft. And I think that the first name in that list is probably Nick Bosa. And I don't know how much there is to say about Nick Bosa. It's lazy to compare right. a guy to his older brother just to do it. But when I watch Nick Bosa, it's completely relevant because they're pretty <laughs> much the same player. Right. I mean, they move the same. They're around the same size. I think Joey is a little bit bigger, but they're both explosive. They're both really physical. Uh, yeah, they just like look, they look like they move the same on the field. It's pretty eerie, actually. They have the same moves. Like, yeah. They both have that little like instantaneous kind of swipe rip move that's kind right. of a push pull because there's some hesitation. It's not even being lazy. It's the exact same move with the exact same timing. It's crazy. <laughs> and that's why I think yeah. that when you're looking at this draft and you're thinking, all right, is, is he the number two overall pick? Well, if Joey Bosa was the number three overall pick and the Chargers are thrilled that they did it, why wouldn't Nick Bosa be a top five pick? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, to me, he's number, he's number one in this whole draft. I think with him and Quentin Williams, one A, one B for me. But, um, I mean, he, he looks to me like one of the highest ceiling guys, one of the highest floor guys, as long as he can stay healthy, which is always just a question mark for everybody. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's explosive. He, he's got some bend when he turns the corner. He can really turn the corner well. Um, he's got a lot of great hand moves, like the way that he swipes away, like you were saying, the way he swipes away offensive linemen's hands makes him just really unstoppable. He can, he can do that while he's countering inside. Um, he's just, he's just really, really good. I think if you go back and watch some of his 2017 tape too, it's just really clear why he's going to go so high. I think he'll be the number two pick. Yeah, I mean, just amazing hands, unbelievable hands. But again, similar to his brother. They're, they're so comparable as prospects. It's kind of nuts. So you mentioned Quinton Williams, and I want to talk about Quinton Williams a little bit. Let's talk about Quinton Williams. Yeah, let's do it. What do, you, what do you think of Quinton Williams? So I understand the appeal. And the reason I understand the appeal is just that he's such a good football player. He has such an amazing feel, and he does a lot of things well. Are you amazing? Are you going to do it? He's such a good football player, and then a butt? Yes. Okay. Let's the hear butt it. Is coming. When when you look at his skill set, it's varied. He's got such a good understanding of how to use his hands, accurately using his hands, when to hit certain moves and different types of moves. I just think his ceiling is defined. And the prospect he reminds me of in some ways, even though they play slightly different positions, is Leonard Williams. And the reason that I mm. say that is because you're watching the guy in college and you're just seeing him dominate college competition because he's so sound and he knows how to use leverage and timing and all of the stuff that we like in terms of just a refined defensive line prospect. But he's not a great athlete. And eventually, that type of player is somebody that you can start for a really long time and rely on just without even thinking about it, but never makes a dominant transcendent impact, if that makes sense. And when I'm taking a guy in the top five, it's hard for me to rationalize a player that I don't think can ever be even a one time first team all pro. I mean, so like he's definitely not the, the athlete that like an Ed Oliver is in terms of his, I guess, explosiveness and, and things like that. But I will say, I think he is extremely quick. Like if you watch him on, on stunts, um, his first step burst is really, really good. But on stunts, he can get he can get lateral really, really fast. So they used him actually 
um, to kind of bound from gap to gap a lot of the time. Um, so I think his quickness is, is really, really key to his game. I think he's got, um, uh, elite quickness. And so I don't know if he's, he's necessarily an elite athlete like some of the other guys in this class or some of the, um, past defensive tackles the last few years. But to me, the way that he combines that quickness with, like you said, his hand use is extremely good. He, it makes him so slippery. You see offensive linemen lunging so often with him because he times his punch and he times his swipes and things like that to kind of just discard blocks. I just think that's what makes him such an elite elite player. I, I, I'm really bullish on him. I do think he has that all-pro potential. Um, I just think, like I said, his size, his length, his quickness, and his power, you know, the way that he combines sort of his hand swipes with power, I think is what makes him such a good player. And I think the, the sky's the limit for this guy for me. I, I'm with, I understand that. I can completely see where you're coming from. I'm a little bit concerned, but I, I see the, the same stuff you do in a lot of ways. This is, it seems like a weird thing to say, but he's very accurate with where he puts his hands. And that yeah. seems like it's a silly thing, but there are so many guys where you'll watch them and they just throw their hands a lot or they're swiping all, all over the totally. place and they're swinging them and they're just flailing. They don't know what they're doing and they don't put them in the right spots. Being able to shoot your hands to the place where you want to really matters for defensive linemen. And the quickness, yeah. you can be quick in two ways. You can be athletic and you can get from point A to point B fast after you make that decision or you can anticipate where you're going to go and you can use that to be quick. And his ability to diagnose is fantastic. And I think that's a big reason why he's able to get places in such just like that. I mean, in, in, a, in the blink of an eye, because he knows where yeah. he wants to go before most guys would. So I yeah. love him he's, as a football player. He's got a lot that you'd enjoy, but I still think that athletically there's enough of a ceiling where it would make me a little bit hesitant when there are other guys in this draft that I just think are unbelievable prospects. His, he did not do much last year. He's, he's a little bit of a one year wonder. And obviously there's a lot of, extreme talent on on the Alabama defensive line so there's I guess there's some reasoning to why he only kind of came out this season but um to to talk about the hands point you talked about um it's not just placement I think that's obviously extremely important important as you're saying um I was talking to Dan Hatman former scout um now runs the scouting academy and he was he was telling me about hand timing uh how important that is um for a defensive lineman it's because it's not just where you put your hands, it's when you strike your hands. Because like I was saying earlier, a lot of guys, a lot of offensive linemen will try and punch him, try and get inside his pads and kind of get leverage or whatever. But he times his swipes and and and, and swim moves and all that stuff so perfectly that literally it looks like he's, you know, like a, a like a matador with a bull. Like in terms of these guys are just <laughs> lunging past him every time. So um I love the guy. I think he's gonna be really good, but um yeah, I mean the one the one year wonder thing is a little bit worrisome, and like you said, the top tier athleticism I think is another thing that you got to keep in mind. So the other guy, kind of in this conversation at the top of the draft, is Josh Allen from Kentucky, and two things I love about Josh Allen: one, the production. I mean, he was arguably the most productive edge rusher in college football last year playing in the sec you can't overlook that he's an unbelievable athlete he tests exactly where you'd want him to and my favorite thing about him and this again might seem small but at the combine a lot of people i I like this question just who's the best player you played against this year and pretty much every single offensive lineman that played against josh (laughs) allen said josh allen and i just think that's so important every defensive player said kyle murray by the way yeah, I mean, and it's, I just, I love that. I just love that he's the type of guy 
that keeps you up at night during the week. They're like, how am I going to stop this guy? And those are the types of players I just think succeed. I assume Nick Bosa is very similar to that just because they have a plan. They're so good. And I, I don't overthink it with this guy as far as I see it. I just think that everything that's being said about him is correct. He's going to be a really good player. I'll be curious to see how teams use him. Watching yeah. him play, you know, he dropped into coverage so much. And I understand that it's cool that he can do that and it gives you kind of a sense of unpredictability on offense. But I also think that when you have Josh Allen, you should just let him rush the passer all the time. I don't know how you <laughs> feel about that, too. but I was almost a little bit like frustrated watching Kentucky tape. I was like, I, I want to watch him just go after the quarterback more. I do not want, I don't want whatever team takes him. I don't want them to turn him into Bruce Irvin. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, for the Seahawks for a long time, he was kind of this Sam linebacker on base downs. Then he would rush only on third downs or obvious passing situations. Like, I, I agree with you. If you're taking the guy in the top 10, he should be rushing the passer a lot more than that. I think, um, like you said, it's cool that he can do all that. It's, it's it's nice to have that versatility, but don't get him off the off the line of scrimmage very often, in my opinion, I think. Um, you know, just let him do what he's doing. Let him get after the pass rusher because, or let him get after the quarterback, I should say, because that's like what he is. He's a pass rusher. Um, you know, you, you bring up how everyone was saying that he's the best def- uh, defender that they were all facing this year. The last time I heard so many people say that about one guy, it was Miles Garrett a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, take that for what you will. But I, I think that, that I, it certainly means something when so many guys say that about him. If I'm the Jets and he's there, I just don't even think about it. If Bosa's yeah. already gone, I just I run I run the card to to the table and just I, I start celebrating because they've been looking for an edge rusher for it seems like every single year since John Abraham left that franchise. <laughs> All right, yeah. let's uh let's get to the guys that you are significantly higher on than other people are, and let's start with Montez Sweat, who you have I think in the top seven. Well, in, in no, a mock he, draft, in a mock draft. That Danny and I did. It's going out later this week on theringer.com. Oh, uh, five. You him at five. Oh shit. <laughs> I, I threw him no, at I've got him. I've got him at twelve, Maze. You're looking at the mock draft. I I'm I think you gotta look at the big board. Oh, uh, okay. I was looking at the mock draft, yes. But either way, Kevin, you finish your point. You I, I had him going to the Jets at three because I, I wanted chaos to reign. I just wanted to screw up Danny's <laughs> mock draft. I didn't want I didn't want besides the fact that I love his measurables, I wanted Danny just totally uncomfortable during the mock draft. So I st- I went full uh <laughs> I went full Okay, chaos but you theory. have him at five, Danny. You have him at five in the mock draft and twelve at it in the big board, which is higher than other people do anyway. So Outside of the testing, because he was just through the roof at the combine, what do you like about him? Or is that it? So just the athleticism. I mean, I think it's obvious the the athleticism and the frame are two projectable things that are he, he's just rare in both of those things. And I think it's kind of like the same deals when Daniil Henner was coming out. Um, you know, he didn't have the production I think that a lot of people wanted, but there was traits there and there was um, I guess flashes of everything that you need in a pass rusher. He doesn't, he's not as bendy at the top of his rush um, as like a Von Miller, obviously, but I think just the way he's able to use his length and, and like take that, he's got a 36 inch, uh, he's got 36 inch arms almost. So it's like crazy amount of length plus that athleticism, the first step burst. I just think it gives him an, a, a really, really high ceiling. So he's, to me, like a high, high ceiling guy. He had pretty decent production in college. Um, and I actually kind of think you, you I, I take um, 
I don't know if you're necessarily right that I think I'm I'm higher than a lot of people on him. I saw Lance Zierling the other a couple of weeks ago say if if you have him after number eight in your mock draft, like you're doing it wrong. Like he's going to be a top ten pick. Which I understand. It's funny because you said Dan- Daniel Hunter, and I don't necessarily see a lot of that. I, the when I watch him. Because of the, I think Daniel Hunter is a change of direction is one of his biggest attributes. I mean, he's so good at kind of those inside counters. And there's some of that with Sweat. But I, when I watch him, what he reminds me of as a prospect is if D Ford were four inches taller. He just has that yeah. unbelievable first step. I mean, he is three yards deep in the backfield in an instant. And you, I mean, the 40 time was excellent at the combine. But when you think about 40 times for defensive linemen, you have to look at that 10-yard split because that's just the initial burst off the line. You know, Brian Burns is a, he picks up speed. He's a long strider that gets fast by the end. Montez Sweat had a 1.5 second 10-yard split at 6'6", 260 pounds. That's crazy. Like that is just the type of stuff you rarely see. And I just remember watching Ford at Auburn and his best way of getting to the quarterback, and it just seems simple, but it matters, is just being past an offensive tackle within the first half a second that the play starts. And that's yeah. what I saw with Sweat, a decent amount. He's just in the backfield instantly. And when you can do that at six foot six, it really matters. So I don't know. I, I understand all the, the traits with him. I don't think he's that fluid when, again, at the top of the rush, he doesn't bend as well as a six six guy needs to, to me. I think that the counters aren't necessarily there. I completely understand the package and what it looks like, but I definitely have some concerns about him. Yeah, I, I do too. And, I, and to me, again, it's it's an upside thing. If he can, so he's shown some ability to kind of like do a hump move because of that. Like you said, that first step burst, you get you get offensive tackles kind of on their heels and oversetting to the outside a little bit. If he could more develop that that uh, inside hand hump move where you just kind of throw guys past the pocket, I think he the could Reggie be White potentially hump move. dominant. The Reggie White Memorial he, hump move. <laughs> exactly. I mean, obviously he's a different body type, but um, like that first step burst where you get an offensive tackle kind of too far outside and then just throw him out of the way. I think that has a lot of potential. Um, he's already got a pretty good like stiff arm, uh, you know, the the stab bull rush move or whatever. And so um, I just think there's a lot of potential there. A lot, like a lot of pass rushing prospect like evaluation is like what can they turn into because they're just so raw at the college level. It's sure. just a, it's a, an extremely difficult position to to evaluate. So for me, the idea is that Sweat has immense upside just based on those those traits and his length. All right, Danny, are you ready? Are, are, are you ready for, are you ready for Brian, Brian, Burns, Brian Burns? Let's do it because so, I think he's going to be good. We don't have to. I've come around. <laughs> <laughs> I've come around. Oh man, uh, that's funny. I've, I've come I, around. All right. So what? So what do you see? Tell me about him. So I was having a conversation with with somebody who I respect, just about the, that I respect as evaluator about prospects, and we were talking about how you can be too tall to play certain positions, and obviously, the oh Jesus Christ, is, you called somebody up to to talk about your. You're a hobby horse that that people we, are just too tall. He brought it up. Yeah, he okay. brought it up. Okay. So I, we this were is like a Tyler the, Durden I mean, thing. You're going to find out that you were talking to yourself the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously the Spoiler, quarterback thing is the, the joke aspect of that. But for me, I, I, I think the same can be true for pass rushers. And I think the same can be true for wide receivers because you don't have the flexibility yeah. and you don't have the change of direction. And you look at Brian Burns and you see that huge frame. 
But what me and this person we're talking about was just the idea that it doesn't matter if you're six six if you can play like you're six foot. And what the, the, what I meant there is that if you can bend and be flexible to the point where you can put your inside shoulder on the ground and play yeah. underneath and gain leverage, then it doesn't matter if you're six six. Then being six six becomes an advantage because of the levers. And watching Brian Burns, he's so much more flexible and he has so much better bend than most six foot six pass rushers would have. And yeah, that allows yeah. him to be an, a guy that can beat you around the corner as well as be a change of direction guy and use that length. And I see that with him. And that's why I think that he can be really good. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly like my position on him. It's, it's, there's obviously the question about his weight. He came into the combine at 249. So that's, that's a big win for him. If he can keep that on, I think that's really huge. But to me, what I always saw was very smooth, very explosive athlete who also can just contort his body in ways that you just don't see from guys that size. Typically. I mean, there was, I don't know if I even talked, I don't, I might've already talked about this on our pod, but uh, there was one play where he was just celebrating and he started doing like this, like crab walk. And he basically almost like put his face to the ground while he was <laughs> celebrating. I mean, he, he is like incredibly flexible. And so, um, you know, I just think that is going to be huge for him. He's he's got a few really good moves in the sense that he you can use his hands to to discard blocks and all that. Um, but like he's like sweat to me in in the sense that you have to project him to the pro game. I think he's got a ton of potential. His upside is through the roof. Um, he's maybe a little bit riskier um, just based on the way he the, the the weight that he played in college but like i just think he has crazy upside so i really like i'd him. rather have him than sweat like definitely yeah, I, that, that's fair i got him ranked higher than sweat too so um i'm with you on that yeah i would definitely rather have him i watched that miami game this morning and the strip sack he had coming off the right side it was just like i, I had an audible reaction <laughs> i was like <laughs> oh my god I mean, it was, it was just the, the burst and again the bend and just the presence of mind to go for the ball i i really do like him there was a clip during the combine where he was doing just some of the drills and he was like, they had him doing backpedal and, you know, flip his hips and change direct. He, he looked like a safety. He was like running around the, the way that he was able to kind of like turn and, and, and change direction and just explode it from a, from a dead stop. I think it was like, wow, this guy, he just looks, it's just effortless for him. So yeah, I'm really excited about him. I, this is your guy. You've been on him forever. Kind of is. Um, yeah, he kind of is. <laughs> I really hope that he succeeds because you were definitely early and you deserve this one, buddy. All right. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to a guy who I don't particularly like that I wrote about today. Probably, I would say maybe the most polarizing player at this position, maybe one of the most polarizing players in the entire draft. And that's Rashawn yeah. Gary from Michigan. He was the number one recruit in the country when he came at, to Michigan in 2016. Uh, he was just an unbelievably celebrated recruit, kind of marked a turning of the page for that entire program that they could land him and right. just did not produce at a high level in college. You know, he had nine and a half sacks in his entire career at Michigan, never dominated consistently. But people think he might be a top 10 type talent just because of his athleticism. He goes to the combine. He dominates every single drill. At 277 pounds, he tested better than Bradley Chubb in every single possible category while weighing almost 10 pounds more. 
I mean, by the way he tests, the way he looks, all that stuff, he's a top 10 pick. And then I watch him play, and I'm just not impressed. Am I missing something? <laughs> or do you think he also is just being overrated because of the type of athlete and recruit and pedigree that he is? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you exactly, pretty much. I think it, I've got him number 31 on my list, which kind of just points to his upside. Again, it's 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 projecting upside. I think he's an extraordinary athlete, clearly. Um, he's got like the exact right sort of dimensions. He, he's like a, a muscular, you know, he's got that build, the physical build where he can play inside too, like where a sweat is not going to play yeah. inside. He's just too lang- leggy or whatever, but he could potentially bounce down and, and, you know, rush off a three or something like that. So I think he's got a ton of potential, but like, I'm like you, when I watch the tape, it's just literally boring. There's just, he, he's just, um, you know, he'll, he'll run past the pocket. Uh, he'll have that good burst off the, off the line, but then kind of just doesn't do anything with it. Um, you know, he, he just still has to kind of develop his pass rush moves, his plan. Um, I guess, you know, I don't really see a ton of bend at the top of his rush either. So like, there's, there's definitely some major concerns with him. I I just don't, I I never really saw the top five hype. I don't know if he definitely has that anymore. I think he probably more realistically will go somewhere in the teens, but there's a potential. He is a top 10 pick for like, certainly I think, um, you know, team like for whatever reason, the NFL seems to be really, really high on this guy. What I don't understand, you said like you don't see much bend at the top of the route. There are t- most of the time when I watched him, I watched like three games yesterday. He doesn't even try to get around tackles. He doesn't right. even try to beat them around the corner. He just tries to run straight through their chest. He has that long arm that he uses, and the long arm's an amazing move. And I wrote about this today. But it's an amazing move when it's the counter off your speed rush because then the guy's off balance and you're essentially knocking him over. It's what Khalil Mack does all the time. But if you're never a threat to try to beat a guy around the edge and he's just sitting there waiting for your bull rush, the long arm doesn't matter. It's not a plan. (laughs) And he rarely has a plan. And that's why I just don't like him. So we have that. He is a guy who you're projecting because of traits. And I think the other guy that people would accuse me or anyone having this conversation of being in a similar mold that I'm higher on, you'd say, why is that Oliver? But when you look at Mm -hmm. Oliver's production, you can see the reasons for why he wasn't more productive from a sack basis. His tackles for loss are where you want them. You know, it's 16, 17 a year. He's disruptive. Disruption is production when it comes to defensive linemen, even if you're not getting sacks. And Oliver does that. Also, he was a nose tackle. With him, it makes sense to me that he doesn't have those eye-popping numbers because the way he was used... With Rashawn Gary, there are no reasons that he doesn't have those eye-popping numbers unless there's a lingering injury I don't really know about. And I think that's something that people have said. So I have yeah. much more, I'm much more cautious and much less bullish on him than I am about at all. Yeah, I think he did have an injury this last season that kind of was nagging for him. So that could be a potential um, you know, reason. But I mean, even like his whole college career, I think, is kind of just like underwhelming in terms of the production. And so um, yeah, when like early, early on in the process, you hear so much about Rashawn Gary and then you turn on the tape and I, I, for whatever reason, I was just, I just don't see what people are so excited about. I think, I think the NFL is definitely, um, you know, over, over the moon about his athletic potential and that potentially could be kind of clouding the fact that he just wasn't very productive at all. And so that to me, that's a huge, huge red flag, but 
Um, again, I do think he's probably going to go in the top 15 somewhere. And it's going to be fascinating to see kind of how he develops because, like you said, I think he is actually the most po- polarizing player in this draft. Cer- certainly the most polarizing pass rusher in this draft. Well, Kevin brought this up earlier in the show when we are talking about receivers. It's about not taking a guy high because you can get something comparable later. And when I watch Rashawn Gary, if you think he's going 15, every time I watch Michigan, both this year and when I was looking at the tape, the pass rusher on that team that jumps out to you is Chase Vinovich. He's just better. He's a better player. And there are, we're running out of reasons why he shouldn't be drafted high. He's one of the most productive pass rushers in the country for the last two seasons. And he tested very well. The list of guys that have run, I think Mike Renner had this second time his name has come up on the show. Good job, Mike Renner. Uh, is he had he <laughs> bachelor, had a list of bachelor contestant, have, bachelor contestant, Mike Renner. Bachelor contestant, Mike He's Renner. probably appeared on probably yeah. a wider variety of pods, his name, than a lot <laughs> of people. <laughs> yeah. And he, he had a list of guys that had run sub four six with a sub seven three cone at 260 pounds or, or 250 pounds or maybe 260 or more. And the list was like Brian Urlacher, Justin Houston, uh, Demarcus <laughs> Ware. I mean, just guys that are Hall of Fame players. Leighton Vander Esch was on there. I mean, guys that have been successful early. And his 20-yard shuttle was in the 95th percentile. His three-cone was in the 90th. There are You have no reasons to not want this guy. He's more productive. His motor is constant. He's relentless. Yeah, and yeah his motor he's, is He tests sick. well. So I just think that if I can get Chase Vinovich with the 42nd pick, I would much rather do that because I think you get comparable or better results and return than you would from picking Rashawn Gary with the 15th pick. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm with you on that 100%. I mean, um, this is like the easiest comparison ever, but because of his long flowing hair, I just always was reminded of Clay Matthews when I was watching him. I, they're different players but yeah, I was trying to get the comp this morning and I just couldn't land on one. The one that I had, and this might seem weird, but they're built in a really similar way. He kind of reminds me of Sean Phillips. Mm. They're both yeah, like 6'3", 255, 260. They play hard. They got that kind of back interior counter move that they go to. I, it's not perfect, but it's the best one that I could land on because I had a hard time thinking about a player that he reminded me of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he he's I think going to be like that day two guy that people are going to get really excited about for sure because, um, I mean like you said his motor is is just out of the, like insane he he just constantly going never stops it actually reminds me a little bit of, um, just watching Nick Bosa the way he plays like with his hair on fire he's constantly going um I think they both have that like really really high motor that works for them really well so um he's definitely kind of a a day two guy that to keep an eye on. I wrote about this I, when I was writing about it. I, I used high motor and I was like, he got slapped with that tag. And, and Meg Schuster, who's editing my piece, was like, is that a bad thing? And I was like, no, it's not a bad thing. But the connotation usually is that if you play that hard, it's because you're trying to mask not being a good athlete. And right. he's not. He's a really good <laughs> athlete. So it's, it's kind of yeah. this weird thing. Like when we talk about high motor guys, it's like it's usually because they can't move the way we want them to. But he's not that guy. He's not at all. He really does get, he, he ticks those boxes athletically. And that's why I just would feel good about drafting him. So, yeah. So to, to contrast that, I actually think this is an interesting discussion because I think both Bosa and Winovich are very high motor guys. And I think one of the things that kind of concerns me a little bit about Burns is he doesn't seem like a high motor guy. He's almost a little lackadaisical at times. And so, um, 
you know, it's up to coaching to kind of get guys to to play with a higher motor, but like having that floor as like a guy who's going to give you a hundred percent maximum effort on every snap. I think that's obviously it's a huge, huge thing. It's a, a very good thing to have too. But um, a lot of times it's used as a pejorative. I, it just because, like you said, it's it's like if a guy is a bad athlete, oh, he's got a high motor. So I, I think it's for those two guys, it's a huge, huge advantage. And while we're just on Michigan, very briefly, because I don't think we're going to get to the linebackers because there are only two. Uh, Devin Bush is a guy who has a high motor and is a really good athlete and just plays like yeah. a missile constantly, whom I love. So he's so it. fun. That's my, that's he my last is so point. fun. <laughs> he, he's, he's amazing. I love watching him. All right, DK, I think that's all we got, buddy. Uh, we will be all back right. next week with another position group with uh, some more chatter about the draft. And uh, thank you so much for listening to the Ringer NFL show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We'll be back next week.